The Lord be with you all today, bread of life. I'm going to give you a little bit of um, more unsolicited kind of feedback or advice. Um, this time, again, having to do with just our social behaviors, our use of technology. As um, consistent studies now showing that adults in this day, uh, attention span is half of what it was 10 years ago. The average adult attention span 10 years ago was only 10 minutes. It's now about five. Um, we are losing the capacity to focus. I know this from analytics. I have these sermons and I can go and look, not by name, but I know when people begin to tune out of a sermon. And it's pretty early on. Now, sermons may not be great and video and, and audio are not easy to follow, not nearly as easy as in person, but it is at least some part of the sign that we struggle to maintain attention, to focus on anything for very long, to read books at full length, we live in this social media world of small bites and sounds. We're multitaskers, but we can't focus. We can't sit. This is connected, researchers know, to our loss of empathy. Um, cognitive patience is the term if you're looking for it, but we can't sit only with books or with ideas, but with other people who are different from us. We can't look across and look at the, the complexity, the beauty of one another. We are more and more likely to look for people like us and to build walls against those people and around those people who are different from us. Marilyn Robinson brings these together. You know, the, the Pulitzer Prize winning author of Gilead and these novels um, from the last century that, that kind of picture a patient, slow, empathetic culture. That was part of her goal. And she said this loss of patience and empathy in our culture is making us increasingly hostile and belligerent, and it threatens to undo our democracy. What does all this have to do with the book of Judges, the reading that we have from the Old Testament today? Well, quite a bit. This book of Judges is 21 chapters, and for whatever reason, our lectionary gives us five or six verses. I expand that, and then it moves away from Judges altogether. Um, Judges is a book that kind of gets neglected, but if we're going to read Judges and understand the book, you need to take all 21 chapters in at a time, and that'd probably take you 30 minutes or so. I don't know, but that's about what I would suspect it took me to get through it. You can get through it faster the second time, but the book needs to be read in whole because it's doing something. It's working in us. It can't be boiled down to moral statements and, and lessons. There's actually characters to be discovered and trends that happen in Israel that are meant to shape us. And scripture does that as a whole. God gives us his revelation with these really wild stories and these strange characters. And those things, when we sit with them, when we reside with them, shape our patience, our empathy, our understanding of the world. So I'm going to lead us into Judges today, but mindful of the fact that you can't um, replace a reading of the whole material slowly and patiently and maybe repeatedly to really grasp what God is doing in this very unusual book. So what is the book of Judges? Um, it's right there after the book of Joshua. That's where it sits historically. And it follows on from Joshua's death. So in the early chapters, uh, it forecasts Joshua is going to die. He's brought the people of Israel into the land and now um, they're going to move on into this new season. And as Joshua dies, uh, enters this season of the judges. Now, um, one woman uh, uh, creatively titles her commentary 
on judges as hollow men, strange women, codes, riddles, and other things. I mean, this is a weird book. Uh, St. Augustine said, God gave us some simple things to follow, but he did not bore us either. He gave us some wild passages of scripture that are very strange. And these 12 judges at the center of the book, there's um, six major judges and six minor judges. And there's a sequence in which they appear in the book. Uh, Israel forgets God or disobeys. God sends oppressors to oppress um, Israel. Uh, the people cry out. A judge comes and delivers them. The people forget. Uh, oppressors come. People cry out. And so this is kind of the sequence through these judges that come, they rise up in response to prayer, and then they deliver the people of God. Now that cycle is actually caught up in a much bigger downward spiral of the structure of the order of the moral framework and fabric of Israel, this dissolution of the nation over these 21 chapters, as the people begin to simply fall apart. I can look at just a few of those to give you this sense of an example. The book opens with um, these early judges of Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar. And in the this story that unfolds now into Deborah, that's our reading today, the prophetess. She's a prophet woman who prophesies and she goes to, to Barak, this um, judge, who's afraid to go to battle. Now that's an important theme that's going to be carried through the book. And she says, you got to go to battle. And he says, not, if, not unless you go with me. Deborah may be one of the most normal characters in the book. And so Barak goes out into battle, but the, the scene ends, it's resolved, when this woman, Jael, um, takes a tent peg and she drives it through the temple of Sisera. First she lures him to sleep, and then she drives this tent peg through his temple into the soil. I mean, that's strange. That should be um, shocking to us. I mean, heroic Jael for being able to do this thing. But something's not right when a woman drives a tent peg through a man's head in vengeance. Like something in the, in the larger scheme of Israel is not going well when there's this kind of celebrated violence or unusual kind of violence. And so that then gives way to these next three major judges that we should look at because they give a real clue to what's happening in the book. And the first, of course, is Gideon, that famous Gideon, God calls him. And they bring him out to um, God to be this deliverer for them. And there's this kind of famous scene in the early on stages when um, Gideon knows he's being called out into conflict to deliver Israel. That he, he says, God, how do I know if you're with me? And so he puts out this fleece in two different mornings with the dew. And you can read the story. And as I was a young Christian man in high school and college, right, these, these guys, these judges, there was something really notable and and noble about them to be emulated. You know, you go looking for something and here's Gideon's fleece and you ought to test God. You may have been taught that. But there's so many signs here that this is not a good idea. Gideon's a bit like Jacob in Genesis 28. He doesn't know the Lord's near and he doesn't believe his promise to deliver him. The fleece is irrelevant. It's a sign of Gideon's own insecurity. So Gideon puts the fleece out and then he goes into battle. And the, the writers do something very creative because we're, um, we're cheering Gideon, right? He's delivering the Israelites from the Midianites. And then all of a sudden, Gideon starts to kind of take part in excessive violence, unnecessary conflict. He likes the idea that he's powerful. And this kind of violence accelerates as it does in the rest of the book. It reminds us of Jael. There's this kind of brutality 
that seems unnecessary in this nation of the judges in this time. And at the end of the book, we get the real closure from the, or the end of this scene with Gideon. We get the narrator's own kind of commentary on the story. The people want to make Gideon king, and he refuses. But he asks for them gifts of gold, and he makes a gold ephod that he puts in his house and worships. I mean, this is not good. Yeah, this is a strange man. These are hollow characters. Gideon's story gives way to Jephthah. Uh, Jephthah's another judge who uh, comes out to deliver Israel. And, Je- and Jephthah does this strange thing that's pretty memorable. When he gets ready to go into conflict, he makes a vow. He says, Oh God, if you will deliver us, whatever comes out of my house on my return from battle, I will sacrifice to the Lord. Now you should hear an echo. It's pretty obvious to the fleece. Right before these conflicts to go out, there's a test. And so um, Jephthah makes this vow to the Lord. And of course, when he comes home, the story has already alerted us to the fact that he has one daughter. And who comes out of the house when Jephthah returns from his victory but his daughter, who Jephthah then sacrifices to the Lord. And they mourn for her to this day. You know, um, uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards, if you know this, one of the famous people who've reflected on the power of a vow. If Jephthah made the vow, he had to keep it. And, and um, Edwards may be right, but I think he's missing the story altogether. It was a stupid vow. It was a rash vow. It's, it's another sign of the lack of moral character and godliness in these judges. And the brutality and the kind of senseless violence as this book spirals downwards. Was it right to keep his vow? It was stupid to make it. And you can see the kinds of the, the shallowness that the story is kind of showing us that a nation is so vulnerable if it doesn't have thick-minded, moral, godly people to lead it. Jephthah, of course, gives way to the last judge in the book, Samson. This was one, right? If you were in youth group in high school or in college, maybe Samson, like the strong man. We want to be like this guy who's so strong for the Lord. But any close reading of the Samson story tells you immediately that he's excessively violent and that he's a womanizer. He kind of wanders around from his family, picking up women and prostitutes, sleeping with them, um, seeing bands of people and killing them. He tells these riddles, right, to, to, um, about the secrets of his strength. And when people discover the riddles, he brutally murders them all. I mean, something's gone entirely wrong with Samson. To focus on his strength is to miss the real paradox of his all. He has no idea how to use it. He's lost all track of the purposes of God. And he celebrates his violence. And then he dies in this great irony. He kills himself in the end as he breaks down these walls to defend the Israelites in his death. It's a a certain kind of of, um, thematic way. People will become like them, you know, the ones they oppose. He dies in his own violence. And the book um, ends there with the judges, and there's two final scenes that kind of bring it to a harrowing, terrible close. The first in chapter 19, the tribe of Dan, so these 12 tribes of Israel, goes out in in, in conflict again to, to fight and defend Israel. And there's these people in the city of Laish who are peaceful, quiet people. And Dan wipes them out. I laugh. I mean, it's a terrible story. Dan is just, there's this kind of randomized violence that's going on. 
and celebrated among the people of Israel. And this final then story is of this nameless Levite and his concubine, neither has a name. It gives you a sense of the degradation, the hollowness, the emptiness of the story. And he journeys with this concubine from her father's house back to his home, and he has to stop for the night in Gibeah. And the men of Gibeah surround the house where the concubine and the Levite are, and they take her and they brutalize her all night and leave her for dead on the doorstep. The Levite wakes up, puts a woman on his saddle, takes her home and cuts her body into 12 pieces and sends it to the 12 tribes of Israel who go about in conflict to kill the people of Jabesh Gilead who have brutalized his, uh, his concubine. The story goes on to another battle with the rest of the Israelites fighting against Benjamin. And the, the, the nation of Israel itself has come to a place that it's now fighting inwardly. Its violence has gone from outward to inward. Its sexual violence has gone from out to inside. And the nation is unraveling. And the book ends with its one of its refrains at the end. And there was no king in the land. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's a fast run through this story. And it really should be sat with for some 30 minutes to read and to take in the strangeness of what happens. And I don't want to to ruin or minimize the story, but I do think there's three, at least three points of contact with the story to reflect on. I'll go through these briefly. Three ways the story is giving us a bit of a lens, a bit of a key to understand what it wants us to take away at the very least. The first is this. The beginning in chapter 2, it says, And the Israelites forgot their God and turned away and disobeyed. This idea of forgot God, they no longer remembered the Lord. That language, scholars all know, is straight from Deuteronomy. There's a lot in this book that's taken from the language of Deuteronomy that had told the Israelites, When you get into the land, do not forget, but you shall remember that man does not live by bread alone. You shall remember the Lord your God who gave you the land. This this aspect of memory is not um, information we remember for a test or an exam. Memory is faithfulness. Memory is the loyalty that belongs to relationship. It's the gratitude that Israel owes to God for the gifts that he's had. They don't remember the Lord, meaning that they have um, failed to retain, failed to attend to and maintain that faithfulness, not just among themselves, but memory means they haven't passed it down to the generations. We haven't given it to our children. See, that's the first, I think, point of exam is memory within our churches. Are we passing on a rich and vibrant and moral and challenging faith to our children? Saint uh, um, Pope Francis has said this, that children are a diagnostic of the parents in their culture. So we watch our kids, we watch their behavior in society. How have we done in passing on the faith, in remembering our relationship with the Lord? What do we need to do? You know, the obligation belongs to everybody, parents and not, to shape and mold a new generation for faithfulness and walking, to remember the Lord. It takes diligence and the Failure to do that is the first sign of fault lines in this time of the judges. Memory. Second, whoredom. A judges uses this language when it says they forgot the Lord, they turned aside, and the Israelites hoard themselves. They prostituted themselves with the gods of the nations that surrounded them, the Midianites and the Philistines. 
you know, this doesn't simply mean, um, you can know of the, of the prophets use this language of whoredom too. Deuteronomy doesn't. This is really strong language. But God's trying to get across what's happened here, that the way that the Israelites are worshiping these foreign nations um, and worshiping their gods. It's um, not simply a matter of putting up stone and wood and, um, and other kinds of, of golden and built uh, um, idols in their homes. That's what they were doing. But it's the, it's the character, it's the story or the worldview of these gods that was so damaging to Israel. Chemosh and um, Baal and Asherah, these gods, they were, their stories, their involvement with humanity was highly violent and highly sexualized. So the, the, the culture that lived around Israel, this whoredom that Israel had, was a longing for, a participation in the ways of these nations, to live like them, to put Chemosh in your home, to put Baal or an idol there, and live out that way. Israel had simply embraced the values of their neighbors, and that's the easy thing to do. That's the challenge for us. It's more challenging, it's more likely to be persecuted if you stand up for a moral framework that resists the values of our culture. And Israel just found it easier to assimilate. These things are okay. Everybody feels pretty good with this kind of behavior. And this um, offends God deeply that he calls it prostitution and whoredom. It's the language of Hosea and Jeremiah and Ezekiel that they try and use. When you turn and worship the values of the nations around you, God considers you a prostitute who've left your love. Whoredom, where are we too much like the culture? Where are we drinking in its energy and its vibes? Memory and whoredom and authority. The final refrain in the book is this one at the end that I mentioned that's mentioned a few, three times. When there was no king in the land, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What was needed in Israel was authority, not an absence of it. I mean, this is a real test for our culture. We want freedom, and yet when freedom is exercised against certain people's opinions, then politically we oppose certain kinds of freedom. We have some serious work to do in our culture because we've lost how authority and freedom work together, how we structure a culture. In the book of Judges, what's happening here is that it's most certainly written, scholars agree, to prop up David's kingship. He's at the tribe of Judah. The, the real foil of the book is the tribe of Benjamin. That's where Saul was from. And so this props up David. David is a, God who, a king who comes in after God's own heart. And he brings this vision and this prayer life into Israel. Now, in reality, the books of Samuel are going to show David's own downfall. He will sexualize. He will be overly violent. But David brings in those psalms, he brings a faithfulness that's completely absent in the judges. He brings a loyalty to the Lord and a faithfulness that the people could look to as a model. Some authority, some sense that the people ought to follow the Lord in their faithfulness. And the book of Judges shows what happens when we don't have that. Freedom needs to be understood for what it is. You know, Augustine said that freedom to do anything is self-destructive. It's anarchy. True freedom is to be able to have um, the capacity, the liberty to, to live for something. Right? If I don't have a purpose in life, that's not freedom. That's anarchy. That's lost. But I can live for a purpose. And that's what David, that's what a king provided. To live into the ways and the love 
and the righteousness of the Lord. It gives you a goal that the judges lacked. Paul says um, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, Galatians 5. But what is that freedom, he says? It's not to be used as a license for your flesh. It's not to do anything you want. You see, that's anarchy. That's loss. That, that, in the book of Judges, that will destroy a culture. Freedom is to be of, um, to freely, lovingly assimilate and, and mold our lives to the goodness of the authority that God has given us in Christ. That longing for David that failed looks forward to Christ who is our king. I end here. In a week, we will celebrate Christ the King, the last feast of the year before we move to Advent. It is not a celebration that Christ will be king. It is a celebration that Christ is king. At the ascension, we celebrate his kingship. He is king now. And his authority doesn't solve the political enigmas and problems we have, but it gives us something to gaze upon that the judges lacked so desperately. To look on his morality, to look on his teaching, to gaze patiently with long attention spans at the scriptures that he gives, that the church might be one, that it might be empathetic, that it might be moral, that it might be righteous in the midst of declining and lost people. May God make us those people who follow our King. Amen.